0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly, easier said, done.
1: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money. At QuickBooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
2: Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York.
0: And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology.
2: Coming up, former Alibaba heavyweights return to the company as the technology giant prepares for its six-way restructuring and spin-off. Will it stand? We discussed with Brian Wong himself of previously at Alibaba and author of The Tao of Alibaba.
0: Plus, we'll discuss AI regulation and investing in the technology as President Biden prepares to meet with leaders here in California this week.
2: And we'll bring you updates on the missing Titan submarine. as so searcher's race to find the diving vessel with five people aboard that went missing on an expedition to view the Titanic shipwreck.
0: There is one big technology story in the world, and it is Alibaba, a shake-up in Alibaba management overnight. You can see what it's doing to the ADRs, down 5%. That's the biggest decline in around a month. What we see is Daniel Jung moves out of the CEO role. He will head the cloud unit. Then you have Zhou Zai moving from being executive vice vice chair to being chairman of the board and they bring in Eddie Wu who's basically led the core e-commerce units and now he becomes the CEO in this kind of split structure. Lots happening here is Alibaba thinks about a complete restructuring and hiving off of various businesses, Car.
2: It really is one to be watching. We've got to dig in more with, well, someone who served for a long time at the business has written about it. Brian Wong, I'm pleased to say, is with us. Author of The Tower of Alibaba. He was, in fact, the 52nd employee to join the Alibaba group. Real focus on globalization. Very close relationship with that of Jack Ma. And what's so interesting is... Well, when you look at the analysts reviewing these moves, they feel as though the spirit of Jack Maher is here, his lieutenants for years come back. What do you think the signal is here, Brian?
0: Yeah,
3: I I do think, um, well, first of all, it's great to be with all of you, and thank you for having me. I think this decision is really um, an important one and also a strong signal to uh, the market, but also to the company that... Yes, it's, it's back to the um, the roots of Alibaba, the uh, the culture, the original sort of drivers of what um, motivates the business and bringing in those who really have a strong understanding of where that all started and also um, individuals who contributed to building uh, what the company
0: is today from the very start. Brian, how closely did you work with Joe Zai, Eddie Wu and Daniel Jung during your time at Alibaba?
3: Well, uh, Joe is actually the individual who hired me um, back in 1999. And uh, Jack, I served as a special assistant uh, for globalization for a number of years. Uh, Daniel, I've, I've known since the time he joined. So all of these individuals are, are people, and Eddie Wu as well. Eddie has been there from the start. He's one of the uh, co-founders of the company. Uh, he actually worked with Jack uh, before Jack even started Alibaba, uh, when he was at the company uh, China Pages, um, Jack's first internet company. So I've known all these individuals. Um, During my time at the company.
2: Let's dig in, Brian, therefore, with Eddie in particular. He moves really to a focus to leadership. What do you think at this moment we will be seeing from a CEO when we are still thinking of the restructuring of this business? Does that still stand as it had been outlined by Daniel previously?
3: Yeah, obviously, I think the the decision to split the company into six parts remains the plan. The question is who would need the holding company Alibaba Group, which now is uh, more of an investment-holding company mm-hmm. than an operation uh, operational company. Um, Eddie brings a number of strengths to the company today in the leadership role. Uh, obviously, he has a very strong technology background. He's played the CTO role or tech, technology sort of leader for companies ranging from Alibaba.com to uh, Alipay, Taobao, Alimama, which was the key driver for the ad system for um, Taobao back in the day. He's, he's run all of the um and also served on the boards of companies like Ali health uh, but he also has a strong business acumen I mean to be able to construct this whole ad network uh, under Ali mama and serve as general manager he also um, during his time has um, done investments he has his own fund that he set up um, uh, in 2015 so he's he's seen virtually every angle of the business, but also not just um, in China, but he's also seen the world outside of China from a technology standpoint, from a business standpoint. I think uh, Eddie has uh, really um, gained the skills that are required for a CEO in this sort of role. Uh, And at the same time, he brings an understanding of Alibaba's culture, which is so important in
0: terms of the longevity of the business. Yeah. Uh, Brian Wong coming to us from from Shanghai, Caroline, 52nd employee at Alibaba. I find Daniel Jung the most interesting. He gets to take the lead of the crown jewel, the cloud business. Mm. Do we read that as a demotion, Brian?
3: I would actually see that as a um, vote of confidence. I think that any individual who would be the CEO and chairman of the most important business within this sort of uh, organization and try and run the holding company at the same time is is a superhuman and probably it's an inhuman task uh, to, to expect them to do both. Uh, I think Daniel himself had suggested that he really focus on um, the the most important uh, operations, uh, that being AliCloud, um, uh, and and you know managing that business to success. He's done that and proved he could do that in the other businesses that he's run. So I would not look at it as a demotion. I would look at it as a vote of confidence and allowing Daniel to really help the company take what is most important forward and yes. become successful, particularly when they're spinning out the company.
0: Of those three individuals, who can navigate the political landscape of China most capably?
3: Well, you know, I I think that um, in today's market, um, what's really important is being able to um, build a business amidst a changing regulatory environment. I think that requires uh, skill and competence and understanding the technology, but also being able to kind of work within the system. And I think that's going to be a group effort, not one individual, but um, probably a team as a whole that has expertise in understanding different aspects of the, 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 the facets involved. And I think Eddie, uh, as I mentioned, has a, a collection of those skills, but I think um, this also comes into play where, where the larger organization will assist uh, in guiding. And also the six business unit heads. Each of them will be responsible for their individual uh, units and each of those industries has unique um, regulatory considerations. Mm.
2: Uh, Let's focus in on the man who hired you, Joe Tsai, because he really understands the relationship between the US and China. Many know him here more. Affably as the Brooklyn Nets owner, as an owner of some significant real estate here in New York City, Brian. And I'm interested as to what he does, his relationship with investors, but also his relationship navigating political and geopolitics at large when it comes to the tensions between the U.S. and China.
3: Yeah, I, I think Joe as chairman is, is, a, is a fantastic choice. Um, he's a consummate investor. That's uh, where his or, or sort of original sort of, you know, focus was prior to Alibaba. Uh, but he's also a trained lawyer um, who has an understanding of good governance and, and you know, how to navigate these regulatory uh, systems. And he's, like you mentioned, international. You know, he's educated in the United States, uh, worked, um, you know, all over the world. And uh, he has the sensitivity and understanding of how to kind of balance these things. I think in a chairman role, that's exactly what an organization as big uh, as Alibaba needs and one that has um, international aspirations. Um, you know, he is in a very good position given his background and skills to kind of play that role and really help bridge uh, the company from China to
0: the world and vice versa, the world to China. Brian Wong, author of The Tower of Alibaba. Alibaba, employee number 52, live from Shanghai. Thank you so much for your time. Now, coming up, we get to that other big story, AI regulation. President Biden's in town here in San Francisco, meeting execs and academics from the field of artificial intelligence. We'll discuss next. This is Bloomberg.
4: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
5: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
0: President Biden heading to California for a meeting with business leaders and experts on artificial intelligence. That's later today here in San Francisco. The meeting comes as his administration pushes companies to develop new security and privacy safeguards for the technology. For more, Spring and Bloomberg's Anna Edgerton in Washington. We have another meeting. We had one six weeks ago hosted by Vice President Harris. We had some frameworks in the interim. Does this mean we might get some concrete rules from this administration on on the field of AI?
7: Well, concrete rules are going to be up to Congress. So what this administration has been very good at is kind of gathering information like the president is doing today, you know, talking to industry leaders, talking to the companies, talking to civil society, and trying to understand what we hear all the time in Washington, risks and opportunities associated with AI. And we've seen that in the framework from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, from the White House's very own Bill of Rights on AI. So you see how they're kind of using this information to frame the policies they're putting out, but this is all guiding documents. What it's going to, in order to uh, pass binding rules that will obligate the companies to certain practices, that's going to be up to Congress. And what's interesting is sort of
2: the agitation over AI regulation in many ways has the ghost of, of social media policy really in it. And I'm interested as to how much Congress, lawmakers, regulators have got up that hill of really what artificial intelligence is, how and ways in which it perhaps poses risks
7: and indeed might be regulated, really. That is so true. I mean, you definitely see lawmakers kind of haunted by the ghosts of social media failures where they, they haven't been able to pass even the most basic underlying data privacy standard at the federal level. And the senators will be the first to say that we haven't even done the most basic necessary to regulate the internet since 1996. So there is this kind of defeatist attitude going into discussions about AI technology. And where they are now is really at the education phase. You know, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has scheduled three briefings for this summer to just explain to lawmakers what AI is, where we are, the uh, the innovation race, and how it could be used in military settings. So we're really just still in this kind of information-gathering phase as lawmakers try to get a grasp on this new technology. Anna
2: Edgerton, thank you for bringing us sort of some of the sticking points for Congress and the White House. Let's talk about artificial intelligence a little bit more. SoftBank in particular, the founder, maso San. Well, his company is in the position to win, he says, the race to master AI, thanks to, of course, the billions of dollars of tech investments, some of which some would say have gone a little sour. In fact, SoftBank Group won't be deterred by a few short-term losses, he says. We will rule the world in the end. Fighting talk. Let's talk about if you can ever rule the world and thus far who's been ruling it in terms of investment. Hilary Frisch is with us, Senior Research Analyst Technology Software at ClearBridge. Hilary, it's great to have you here in the studio. And the hype cycle is clear. Everyone's getting into various AI-related names from an investment thesis. How much are you thinking about future regulation within that investment
8: opportunity? Sure, thanks Caroline. It's so good to be here, thanks Ed. It's a really terrific question. We think about it quite a bit. We're very early in the stages of discovering what regulation will look like and how that will impact the sector. However, I think in this particular case, um, there's going to be quite a bit of help to the government, provided to the government by the companies that are actually the major providers of AI services and products. Microsoft for one, OpenAI for another in conjunction with Microsoft are big proponents for government regulation. So I think you're going to see a somewhat symbiotic situation between commercial and government entities in terms of bringing proper, appropriate and effective regulation to AI.
2: But of course, it's a global question. And there's Masayoshi Son of SoftBank saying, we're going to rule the world in terms of AI. I mean, a large. Part of his investment is in arm holdings a uk company like all of right. these things are are global in nature is there a sort of a, a, a a race that's going on, or do you th- is U.S. the dominant force? Does it matter from your
8: investment thesis perspective? I would say there is a race going on, and I would say that's going to form part of how that guides regulation in terms of how it over, oversees AI's development. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, regulation is global in nature as well, as we're seeing in a variety of instances. So I think we'll see the various governing bodies come together to figure out how to how to oversee AI, at least in terms of western nations and then we'll see who's leading in the end
0: hillary good morning from san francisco good afternoon to you in new york does your research point you to any single one name or couple of names that you think are best positioned to win this ai race
8: It's another great question, Ed. I think we think there are going to be a variety of names who benefit. Uh, We are early on in the process. And so far, clearly, NVIDIA and Microsoft have stood out in terms of AI leaders positioning their product lines early on for embedding AI services throughout and capitalizing on the AI opportunity. But there are a variety of them who are going to benefit um, up and down the chain. And I think what it comes down to is if a company has a unique in important data set, if they're embedded in their customers' customers' processes and workflows, and if they're equipped to actually help customers deploy AI in a safe and efficient manner, they should win. And this is going to involve all hyperscale platforms, including clearly Microsoft, Amazon because of its incumbency in corporate networks, Google because of its deep history in AI ML, and also Oracle, who has an interesting play yes. on... A, well, H- Hillary,
0: we, we actually talk about Oracle much less than any of, of those names on this program, Bloomberg Technology, and it has just also hit a fresh record high. So, so play that scenario out for us. Why is, is, is Oracle kind of a, a winner in this AI debate?
8: Well... Oracle has re-architected its cloud offering, its infrastructure cloud as a next-generation cloud, taking many of the best practices that the original cloud providers learned during their process. And it has a unique take on how it's architected that infrastructure with some, I'd call it, network-heavy capabilities, which should actually be quite valuable in AI. Because I think we're going to have a period of proliferation of need of base infrastructure build out to accommodate the very high data volumes that AI will bring to us. I think Oracle will be well equipped to handle that, along with Microsoft and others. And Oracle also recently announced some important AI partnerships with an LLM model company called Cohere and with NVIDIA, which I think will uh, bring big dividends to them over time. So they're, they're a more recent but important emerging beneficiary.
7: Hillary,
2: not many people want to talk about how expensive everything is and we all want to talk about how expensive stocks are we don't want to talk about how expensive it is to run these large language models the the amount of gpus everyone's having to be buying are these companies pricing it right at the moment they seem to be making enough as they
8: go along Well, it's such an interesting question. Um, They're thinking quite a bit about how to price it, and we're starting to see emerging pricing coming out in the marketplace. I think so far they're doing a good job in terms of pricing for AI-enabled services is actually quite high. In the case of APIs on Azure OpenAI, they were multiples of what a traditional API would be to actually access, marry the data with the models. Uh, And AI-enabled applications are priced anywhere from 30 to 80-plus percent what a traditional application would be. But there's real value in them because of the productivity benefits which will accrue to the users. So at the end of the day, I think they're starting to do a good job of, um, of providing the opportunity for profit as well as uh, revenue acceleration as due to the uptake of, as a result of the, the uptake of AI. Similarly, uh, Salesforce just introduced their pricing of their AI-enabled applications last week, and those applications are going to have a per seat component as well as a usage component. And I think you're going to see more and more creative models around AI and where there are productivity benefits to be cornered, customers will pay for them.
0: Hilary Fresh, Clearbridge, just deep research in AI. Time for talking tech. First up, the Cannes Lions International Festival of Creativity is underway, and while it usually attracts the most influential executives in advertising and platforms, two notable names will not be in attendance: Elon Musk and Twitter's new CEO Linda Yaccarino. This is the social network works to win back spending on the platform. However, on Tuesday, Twitter announced that it will explore solutions from companies that specialize in tracking the quality of ads. And sticking with Musk, according to sources, he's likely to meet with India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi today on a visit to the US. The private meeting is expected to take place early evening in New York and comes after Tesla and India revived dialogue in May following a year-long standoff. Plus, Germany will finance a subsidy package worth $10.9 billion for a planned Intel facility in Magdeburg via its Special Climate and Transformation Fund. That, according to people familiar with the plans for more, let's bring in Bloomberg's Agi Cantrell out in Berlin. Aggie, what's the latest on this one?
9: Yes, so this uh, this investment of 10 billion, uh, 10 billion euros in subsidies from the German government is going to be also brought forward by 30 billion dollars, uh, 30 billion euros as a, a direct investment, the largest foreign direct investment in Germany's history from uh, any company. And Intel is going to be putting forward 30 billion euros of its own money uh, into this investment. And that is also critical, because actually this is a project that has been a long time in the works. and. It was put on pause because Intel said the costs were getting too high. Originally, they committed to 17 billion dollars with subsidies of te- uh, 17 billion euros with 6.8 billion euros in subsidies from the German government. And they went back to the negotiation table this year because they were saying that it is costing them too much. The economic headwinds are hitting the company. And so they needed more in terms of subsidies. This is a yeah. question as well for how much Germany is willing to front for these companies to onshore a lot of this. Chip production, Aggie. Great roundup. Thank you, Aggie Cantrell, there in Berlin for us.
0: Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Ed Lovelow in San Francisco. And I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's stick with the geopolitical. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he expects to see more communications between Washington and Beijing following his visit to China, where he did meet with President Xi Jinping. He spoke about it at a press conference in London.
3: The relationship and the communication between uh, the two leaders, between President Biden and President Xi, is most important of all. That's why they've um, had um, a number of communications and meetings uh, to date, and that's why I expect uh, you'll see more of that
1: in, in the time ahead.
0: There's a lot to go over in the, in the context of foreign relations. Also, the regulatory angle to all of this, that ties in, of course, artificial intelligence. And joining us now for more is Anu Bradford, professor at Columbia Law School and author of the upcoming book, Digital Empires, the Global Battle to Regulate Technology, coming out this September. Professor Bradford, thank you for your time. I think we start with technology at the heart of what's happening between the US and China, what do you make of, of Mr. Blinken's visit to China and, and what it may or may not have achieved?
10: So thank you, Ed, for having me here. And, and obviously, it is a good sign that at least the US and China are talking. But the gaps between the two, the interest and the ideologies surrounding technology, are very hard to bridge. So there are fundamental differences, for instance, when it comes to AI. So first, there's an AI race, the battle for technological supremacy. But there's also a a battle on how we should think about building digital societies by deploying AI. So the U.S. and the EU um, are very concerned of China's use of AI for digital surveillance and also the exportation of those surveillance technologies around the world that then increases China's influence and pushes the world towards potentially greater digital authoritarianism. So that is certainly one tension. The other tension is how to regulate and protect people in their own
2: communities at a time where you also don't want to stifle innovation as usual it feels like the eu is getting there first in terms of thinking about and processing actual regulation we're anticipating well the ai act later this week and can you bring us up to speed with just how aggressive they are about not only regulating the application of ai but the underlying models
10: the building of artificial intelligence too So that is exactly right, Caroline. So as expected, the EU is ahead of the game and much more willing than the US to regulate AI. So the the EU uh, wants to also be ahead and try to make sure that innovation takes place. But there are some really deep concerns about how the AI potentially has harmful implications, how it might compromise the fundamental rights, how it might then have an adverse effect on democracy. So the EU has now moved along with a very ambitious, I'm not sure if I use the word aggressive, but very ambitious AI act. It was approved by the European Parliament this past week, and it's now up for a negotiations between the key legislators, the council, and uh, the parliament, and the commission. And potentially, we might see that law be finalized by the end of the year. But the big challenge, as you noted, was that when we were already far along in the legislative process, the chat GPT and generative AI really took the center stage in the conversations. And the legislative template wasn't exactly designed for the kind of technology that generative AI represents. So the, the focus was really that we look at how risky the application of the AI is, and then we adjust the regulatory obligations accordingly. But obviously, these large language models can be used in very risky settings or then in completely safe settings. And that is now going to be one of the main conversations that will be, I believe, dominating the last steps in this legislative process. But there will be legislation forthcoming and the generative AI will not get a free pass.
2: I mean, Ed, you and I are Europeans, even though maybe the UK's not part of the EU. But Professor Bradford wrote before the current book that's about to come up about the Brussels effect, about the fact that, look, Brussels getting their first in terms of regulation does set the standard, doesn't it? I just think of GDPR.
0: Yeah, I spent many years in Brussels, Professor. It always starts at a lower level. 2018, the expert group starts its work on AI. By comparison, you have President Biden flying into town this afternoon to San Francisco, hosting a meeting, meeting with these uh, industry leaders. Which pathway is more effective to getting actual oversight of the technology?
10: So I I think whether there is an effective pathway that would exclude the governments of the tech companies. So I don't see that one way exclusively can necessarily work. But the Europeans certainly are convinced that any governance of the AI needs to be entrenched in legislation, in rule of law, in democratic governance. And we certainly need to have transparency and accountability so that we can have a democratic conversation on how these companies are developing their models, how we are deploying AI so that it's consistent with our laws and values. But at the same time, even the EU is is painfully aware of the challenges ahead, the EU in trying to legislate and to implement effectively this legislation. And for that, it does need the partnership of tech companies. So I was encouraged to see that even now when we don't yet have the AI Act in force, the Europeans and Americans are having a conversation together with the tech industry trying to come up with a kind of code of conduct that we already have some guardrails that we all agree upon and hopefully that dialogue will then continue as the EU's legislative process moves forward. And we'll see if that dialogue in any way starts to drift between China and the US
2: and Europe as well. Bradford, fascinating. Come back, please, soon. We thank you, Professor at Columbia Law School. And we're coming up from FTX Ventures to Menlo Ventures. Partner Amy Wu chose us to talk about her big move, where she's investing, and how the consumer and AI are intertwining in this moment. This is Bloomberg.
4: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. And Grammarly's personalized on brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly, easier said, done.
5: Success is more than the final destination, it's a path you take one step at a time, it's discipline.
2: It's that time, VC Spotlight. And I'm very pleased to welcome to the show today, Amy Wu, you know of course the former head of FTX Ventures and as of last week, partner at Menlo Ventures, planting the flag of one of Silicon Valley's oldest venture firms right here in New York City. Although ironically today, Amy you're over there on the west coast and I'm interested therefore, your thesis, where you're looking for founders, what kind of companies and where you want them to be based.
6: Yeah, I s- recently started at Menlo Ventures. Very excited, and I'm going to be covering consumer and gaming investments over here. It's actually, you know, Menlo doubling down on consumer investments. Interestingly, at a time when a lot of funds for the last few years have been rotating out of the category, and uh, and and so, you know, whether it's blockchain or non-blockchain, AR, VR, um, you know, it's a it's a, it's a, it's it's constantly an area with new platforms and uh, an innovation, um, new customer and user experiences, so I'm really excited to be uh, focused on the space.
0: I I guess, Amy, it takes me to the why be the GP for consumer and gaming. I'm assuming there will be crossover in your previous work looking at blockchain. You know, when I think about video games, as we know on this program, video games is life. (laughs) Uh, I think about collectibles in games, tokens, things that you buy, security around that, and blockchain technology, is that kind of how you're thinking?
6: It's one of the areas, so uh, I would say that you know, if you look at the history of consumer and gaming investing, um, particularly consumer investing, it's been driven, new experiences have been driven by platform shifts. And uh, I would say that, you know, mobile was the last very large one. Um, a lot of the, you know, most, you know, interesting companies of like the last 10 years. So if you look at Uber and um, and Airbnb, et cetera, really were created um, with, uh, you know, technology and inv- innovations in mobile, uh, blockchain is a promising, you know, platform shift. I would say, and still early. There's been companies experimenting on, um, you know, on chain. But I think, you know, it's yet to be seen in terms of mainstream adoption. And of course, you know, everyone is very excited about the promises of Gen AI
0: right now as well. I, I think about your background because Menlo uh, is, is a different firm, a new firm. You know, reflecting on what's happened in in recent years, how much of the conversation with Menlo was about what happened at FTX Ventures? Was it sort of any kind of barrier to moving forward, working with them?
6: The short answer is is no. I think that you know they they know that you know myself and to be honest, like most employees, uh, you know unfortunately were were misled by the founder and uh, and so most of our conversation, frankly, was in terms of what I will be covering and
2: uh, in my thesis areas for the future. You were actually only there for ten months. What what do you feel you've learned from the experience? An emotional one, I'm sure, and one of great hurt, but how ultimately do you feel you will do business differently post FTX Ventures?
6: You know, I, I've been a I've been a venture investor for a long time. You know, I previously spent a few years at, at Lightspeed and before that at Insight. And so, in terms of being an investor, you know, I haven't lost any passion for that, uh, and uh, and you know, excited to continue working with great founders. And um, and I think you know. There's been a lot of learnings from FTX. I mean, first and foremost, I mean, it was a very fast-growing company um, that did real revenues and, uh, and, you know, profits in the years that it was in operation. But I think, you know, um, there's a lot of uncertainty in, in tech and, in, you know, none of us really expected that to happen.
2: What's interesting is we find ourselves in a new AI hype cycle, it feels like. Crypto was the hype cycle previously. AI is the new one. And you, of course, were there within some of the savvy investments being made with FTX Inventures was Yuga Labs, I think a Ape Yacht Club and just how that sort of became the number one NFT anyone could really think of. Sober Studios, the Web3 platform to build your own games. Are you thinking this feels like a hype cycle again? How do you make sure you have long-term investments in the world of artificial intelligence and where that value rises right now?
6: It's a really great question. I mean, AI has been a technology in development for decades at this point. And um, it certainly had its uh, iPhone moment, I would say, in um, the last fall with the with the launch of ChatGPT. And so, um, you know, when I was at Lightspeed, Lightspeed had long time been invest in, investing in, in AI, and Menlo has also been as well. And so I would say that really the investment cycle continues. Um, you know, with gen, uh, with gen AI, there is... Uh, so new surface area, I would say in terms of both increasing productivity of workers, for example, artists and gaming, but then also in terms of defining um, a, a new way that people interact with computers and also, you know, converse with computers, which is really interesting and has a lot of ramifications in, in consumer experiences. So um, those are all areas, um, those are all areas that will be
0: really, really interesting to track. Amy, within video games, are you, are you interested in, in startups and companies that, that want to use generative AI progress on the content side? Where's the opportunity?
6: In gaming, so um, a lot of tech uh, actually, I think, originates from gaming as a use case. And the concepts of, I would say, like two areas of, of a lot of intense um, interest, which is procedural generation of content in games and also uh you know, NPCs or interactions with bot players um, in the game has actually been you know in development for for a couple of decades. With the first Diablo game, you know, with MMOs, yes. and uh, and so it's a concept that I would say gaming founders and gamers know quite well, and. Um, And as such, you know, they're both sort of wary about the hype cycle right now and gen AI investing and the promises of that, but also very, um, very keen to, I would say, experiment with the technology. And at a higher level, I think that, you know, indie gaming studios have always been uh, disadvantaged compared to incumbent large gaming companies when it comes to budget in in sort of game design, marketing, etc. And so um, if... Gen AI tooling is able to uh, help. I would say, like you know, augment what they are able to create from a content perspective at cheaper costs. Then it levels the playing ground. I think it allows a lot more games to be uh, released of a really high quality, and that's uh, that's a net plus for
0: players. I love that your your mind went to non-player characters. I, there's a lot of discussion around how let's just make games better and more challenging and dream up worlds to play in. Um, gotta, gotta, I'm going to get too involved in this video game chat. Got to get your take on consumer. You kind of start this conversation saying you're kind of pivoting into something that others have pulled back on. Is there a risk there?
6: So there's two things that are simultaneously Uh, well. the first is if you look at you know just the NASDAQ and S&P you know some of the largest market cap companies are consumer tech companies Um, on the other hand you know if you look at the last I would say six, seven years or um, there hasn't been a lot of I would say very large consumer tech companies that were um, newly founded uh, that has reached you know the scale of Facebook and, and Amazon and others and I think one of the reasons is because you know incumbents were founded with pretty deep network effects that are very difficult, and they have massive distribution, and it's difficult for a new company to compete. And yeah. so it remains to be seen whether um, you know Gen AI as a platform and, and new technology is going to actually you know benefit incumbents more or um, new startups. And I generally believe that for a new consumer tech company, uh, you really need to dream about a very new surface of consumer experience to um, compete against com- incumbents. Otherwise, it's, uh, it's pretty difficult even today.
0: All right, Menlo Ventures partner Amy Wu, thank you so much for your time and telling us about your new role. Uh, Caroline, pivoting to another story, a little bit AI related, Bloomberg's reporting that Spotify is bringing out a premium tier dubbed su-premium internally, according to sources. There will be an element that includes hi-fi audio, not doing much, though, to support the shares down to percentage points or so. It's taken over the web. A submersible carrying five people to tour the wreck of the Titanic on the Atlantic seabed went missing on Sunday, and extensive rescue operations are still underway. Bloomberg's John Gilterson joins us. John, what is the latest on this search?
1: Well, the latest on the search is that there are more aircraft being dispatched to the region that are capable of searching below the surface. They've explored a lot of the surface with radar, uh, with other search capabilities, but they haven't found any sign of it, so now they're looking deeper under the surface for this missing submersible.
2: Has this happened before, And, and could there be a chance that satellite, Starlink, is reconnected in some way?
1: I mean, I suppose there could be a chance. The um, craft itself has between 70 and 96 hours of oxygen from when it went down. We're now more than 48 hours into it. So the clock is definitely ticking. I mean, that's the key thing is like, can they locate this craft if it's still, you know, a viable craft? and bring the people back up to the surface, and you have to unscrew all the, uh, the ports from the outside. Those people inside, even if they floated at the top, couldn't open it themselves.
0: Yeah. John, a big part of this story is who is inside the submersible. That's why so many people are talking about it online on social media. Tell us who this crew is.
1: Yeah, well, it's a really, you know, interesting international group. There's a guy named Hamish Harding, who's a jet aircraft broker from, he's from the UK, but he uh, lives in Dubai. He also flew on Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin trip once. He's, you know, big explorer guy, the head of the company that runs this diver Ocean Gate Expeditions. His name is Stockton Rush. He's like the pilot of this crew. There's a Frenchman, Paul-Henri Narjale, who is like undersea explorer guy. And then there's a couple of um, uh, two people from Pakistan, a father and son, Shazada and Suleiman Dawood, who are a prominent wealthy yes. Pakistani family.
2: It's a story we're going to continue to track. We thank you for taking some time out to join us on television. Sean Gittleson, thank you. And let's note that the Coast Guard is scheduled to hold a press briefing involving the search efforts, said in just a few minutes from now over in Boston. But meanwhile, well, that does it for this edition of Technology.
0: Yeah, a lot to recap from the show. <laughs> Global technology stories from around the world. Check out the podcast, Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and on Bloomberg. From New York and here in San Francisco, this is Bloomberg.